um, on so many levels. And so um, the way that our design works is that the alumni of the organization that have gone through the program and have had successful outcomes and have you know, made it into middle-class jobs, they come back and they train the next set of people. And um, that allows for people to then access their newfound social capital um, and the alumni to know one another and to build relationships. And then once a month, the climbers then also get to meet middle-class professionals um, and they get to practice the art of storytelling and, um, and, and meeting somebody new that they wouldn't have met otherwise and to practice the art of relationship building and asking questions and being active listeners and, um, following up and staying connected and, um, finding ways to create homophily, which is this concept of finding similarities. And when you find similarities, we then um, immediately have more trust and trust is what is the lubricant to create social capital and referrals. Welcome to episode 77 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features Nitsan Pelman, a three-time social entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Climb Higher, a national upskilling nonprofit organization that helps low-income and overlooked working adults break into new careers. Nitsan and I discuss her upbringing in an Orthodox Jewish community and her decision to ultimately leave that life, how her work at Teach for America and the New York City Department of Education led her to founding Reup Education and eventually Climb Higher, and how she and her team are empowering people by teaching them applicable job skills, and most importantly, how to utilize their social capital for growth. It's worth noting that this was recorded on September 6th, prior to the horrific terrorist attacks in Israel on October 7th. Here is Nitsan Pelman on People Are the Answer. Nitsan, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So glad to have you here and to share your story with our audience. Be great if you could start off by just telling us who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is. Sure. My name is Nitsan Pelman, and I'm the founder and CEO of Climb Higher. Uh, I live in the Bay Area um, in Berkeley, California, um, and I'm uh, excited to tell you more about the work we do. Awesome. And in life in general, what would you say motivates you? I think honestly, like creating communities that of people that help one another is a really deeply motivating um, concept for me. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And um, I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was it like there? I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and um, I grew up in a very religious, Orthodox Jewish community. Um and um, went to, you know, Jewish um, Orthodox schools um, from K through 12, and also spent a year studying in yeshiva in Israel, and then went to an Orthodox Jewish college in New York um, called uh, Yeshiva University. Um, and then not long after that, decided that Orthodox Judaism wasn't quite for me yeah. um, and left that world. Um, and to be honest, I really wanted to be... Um, a Jewish communal leader of some kind. If there were rabbis in Orthodox Judaism, I probably would have wanted to be one. Um, and when I left it, I really struggled with, you know, where where is my value system? What is it? 
where are my people? Where is my tribe? And um, I had a dear friend that I grew up with um, who did Teach for America, um, actually is one of the first Orthodox Jews to ever do Teach for America. And she was doing it in Washington Heights in New York. And we were both graduating from college and I was really deeply inspired by her and um, her leadership. And so I called the organization cold and asked them if there was a job that I could do <laughs> um, as a 22 year old. And they somehow remarkably hired me as their first ever development director. Um, so I, I sort of got exposure to the um, the inequities that really live in our public school system um, and um, how deeply they affect race. Um, and, and when you sort of like layer in race and poverty and um, low expectations, um, it's just a triumvirate that leads to really bad outcomes for kids in low-income communities. And I really wanted to fight and um, put a lot of my life's passion into that into that space, and did yeah. so for the next um, nearly twenty years. That's that's incredible. And let's let's backtrack a little bit. So you, you know, you mentioned Orthodox Judaism. Um, you know, I, I personally have uh, relatives that are Orthodox. I went to an Orthodox Jewish day school through fifth grade, so can relate. You know, in in some respects. And um, well, Jeff, I, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> that was our connection. <laughs> Yeah, no, we tend to find each other, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I can certainly imagine just how difficult it was to sort of leave that community. And I mean, I commend you because I know it took courage to do that. Yeah, it did. Um, it's, it was probably the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. Um, but one that, you know, I think was the right one. Um, it just felt like there was a lot of do's and don'ts. Um, and, um, and the value system didn't feel quite aligned. Um, although, ironically enough, like now I'm in my 40s and I stayed away from it for a long time. I don't think I'll ever be an Orthodox or religious Jew again. But, um, you know, as I've come to have a family and come to have re come back to re respect many of the things that I couldn't quite grasp as beautiful as a, as a kid or as an adult, um, but now I'm really working on rebranding and rebuilding and reimagining what that looks like for me now. And, um, you know, it's it looks very different, but it is present. And I'm really proud of that. And I think a, a prideful person would just say, well, I left it and I can't, you know, come back to any parts of this. And I, you know, I'm really sort of picking from the beauty of it. Um, and that feels good not to sort of have too much negative energy around it, but to reimagine it with positive energy. I love that. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people's relationship with their religion that they were raised on can change over time. Um, you know, I'd say similarly for me and, and other Jews that I've talked to, you know, that were raised a certain way, sort of want to take their time out of it. And similarly, you know, when having a family, it kind of makes you want to root yourself in the traditions to an extent. And um, certainly has happened with me and having kids and like wanting to find deeper connection with my ancestors in Judaism, but without doing it in kind of the same rigid way that, you know, we were brought up in. And um, I've, I've found some great ways to do that. And uh, I think that it's, it's awesome that you're able to kind of come full circle and appreciate the aspects that were good. Great. Thank you. So you mentioned, um, you know, going to Israel and going to Yeshiva University, 
Um, and then eventually uh, ending up at Teach for America. Um, my, six, my sister actually uh, briefly did Teach for America before she had a major car accident that kept her out of it. But um, mm. her time, fortunately she's fine now. Um, but her time there was uh, certainly, she learned an incredible amount. Um, and so, yeah, it sounds like it had a big impact on you being with that organization. Yeah, it's a life-changing organization. Um, I think the founder, Wendy Cap is a brilliant woman who sort of understood that you could recruit people that were in this coming of age moment in time, um, people that you know, had demonstrated leadership, take initiative, were problem solvers, were go-getters, and you could shape and mold them um, into caring deeply about creating more equity um, and a fair, a fair experience for kids um, all across the country. And I was very deeply moved by that in my early 20s, along with I guess at this point, tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people um, whose identities were very much shaped by the value system of giving, caring, fighting relentlessly on behalf of um, creating a better educational experience for people who don't always get access to them. Um, and that is was was deeply rewarding, deeply meaningful work that then you know, shaped so much of what I stand for today and have, and have really never veered from since then, since those kind of life molding opportunities. Yeah. It sounds like it really helped you with your foundation and where, where you wanted to go from there. And, um, you know, looking at, uh, your LinkedIn, it looks like you spent a couple of years at teach for America, um, and then worked with a few other organizations, uh, before ending up at the NYC department of education. I did, yeah. Um, so after TFA, I, I went to graduate school um, at NYU. Um, and while I was there, I worked at KIPP Academy in the Bronx, the very first KIPP Academy um, on the west, on the East Coast. Um, at the time, there was only one other KIPP Academy. Now it's, you know, a network of very famous charter schools. Um, and also a, a new organization at the time called New Leaders for New Schools. In many ways, I got to work for like the founding fathers and mothers of the education reform movement um, in the late, uh, in the early 2000s and late 19, 1990s. And, um, you know, those folks have gone on to be, you know, very large um, icons in our space, Wendy Kopp, Dave Levin, John Schnur. Um, and I really got to grow up under them um, in, in, in various, you know, leadership roles. Um, and then when um, I finished graduate school, um, Joel Klein had become the chancellor of the New York City public school system. Mayor Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg was the uh, mayor. And uh, there was just euphoria in New York around, you know, change could happen. The right leadership was there. Um, and it felt like the right time to go work in the public sector and and um, and have a go and understand um, what the largest public school system um, in the country looked like and what it took to create positive change there. Um, I worked there for four years. I built a mentoring program for all of the city's first and second year teachers. It was a $43 billion initiative. Um, that I got to work on, and that was really rewarding. And then I moved into the office of the uh, office of the accountability, and 
which I think is like a horrible name, but <laughs> um, we got to, we did many things in that office, but one of them was we created a survey that um, asked all of the major stakeholders of public schools, i.e. the kids, the parents, and the teachers, what the learning environment felt like and what they were experiencing in schools. And we triangulated that data um, to really see like how aligned or not aligned those various stakeholders in every school building were. And that um, was part of an overall grade that they, um, that the schools got. And that um, amazingly enough, I mean, I did this work in 2020, 2006, seven, um, and those surveys still exist in the public schools in New York today, which is really exciting. It's one of the only, only things left from that reform period. Well, it must be rewarding to see kind of your work still doing its own thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so it sounds like it was a transformative experience learning about uh, the school system in New York City from the ground up. Um, and it looks like that led you to founding these uh, Citizen School New York. Um, and, you know, how did you get involved in Citizen Schools? What brought you to, to open the New York uh, Citizen Schools? Well, I guess one thing to talk about from my Teach for America days um, was the executive director at the time at TFA in New York. Uh, her name was Cami Anderson, and she was a real icon in the ed reform space um, and went on to become the superintendent of the New York public school system when Mark Zuckerberg gave um, the big $100 million gift. And she was really an iconic figure um, and a woman leader that I just admired, respected, and you know, in my ripe age of 22, um, uh, was obsessively um, stalking in many ways. Um, I just watched every move she made, and I was so grateful that she was my manager, um, my first my first manager. She was a very strong woman, a very strong um, personality, and. And just really taught me a lot about, you know, if we don't, if we don't like, if we, if we think the rules um, and the systems are, you know, not working on behalf of the most vulnerable in our country, like we got to change those rules. We got to change things. And I'd grown up in a world where people followed rules and, and adhered to them very closely. And so it was really the first set of models for me of like, no, we can challenge rules and we can fight for um, justice. And um, she modeled that really beautifully. And I think because like she was such an important key role model for me, I really wanted to become an executive director of an education reform organization. And I wanted to be in that role before I was 30. And um, when I was leaving the Department of Ed, I kind of went on a search to um, figure out like where could I lead in this way? Um, and, you know, I didn't have experience doing that work yet. Um, I had just kind of you know, been leading programmatic work and, and development work for a long time in my 20s, but I had not managed teams. I had not built things from, the, you know, um, at, at the at the way that citizen schools worked. But I, I found them. They were a national organization based in Boston, had very deep roots in, in many states across the country and had not opened up a New York operation. And they focused um, specifically in middle schools in the inner city and were really um, creating an extended learning day where kids were at school until 6 p.m. instead of 3 p.m. 3 to 6 p.m. are the most dangerous hours for kids in low-income communities. It's where gang violence and recruitment sort of um, is at its heightened state. It's when kids get um, bullied. It's when um, just kind of 
addiction, things that are really not great for kids kind of really sprout out the most. And so having them not only in safe and protected environments, but also in productive learning environments um, was really the work that citizen schools did. And we extended the learning day and we um, brought in um, uh, professionals from Google, from Nike, from Facebook, from all these different um uh, companies, uh, and they would teach the kids what they did. Um, they would create commercials with them. They would design robots with them and they would make learning relevant and interesting and come to life. And we'd also support kids in their extra learning, um, with reading and with math. Um, it was hard work. Uh, it was the first ED ship I had. I ran it and built it for, uh, built it and then ran it for six years. Um, and it was, you know, really formative and really important part of, um, my career, but also I think really formative for so many of the students that we got to serve in those years. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine the tremendous impact you're making opening that door, having that opportunity for students. Um, it is remarkable to just know what that sort of, you know, those few hours, how impactful they can be, um, the way that you put it, it, uh, it just really hits you. Yeah, totally. I think just having role models, um, that, you know, kind of transcend the spaces that kids, especially from low-income communities, yeah. had access to was really powerful. And I think, I mean, I also say like on my own learning journey as a kid, I also struggled in school and didn't love learning. And that was because it was taught in a really root um, and kind of boring way in which teachers stood in front of classrooms and talked at people for hours at, 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 you know, uh, at a time. And I think most kids and adults don't learn that way. Yeah. They learn by interacting with the content. They learn by doing, um, which are not novel educational concepts. They're really as old as time, but they don't happen nearly as often as they should or could. And that was really what citizen schools was about, like making learning come to life, making it yeah. relevant so that when kids asked, like, why do I have to learn this? Who cares about the Pythagorean theorem? Like we could show them like how that really applied to building robots and things like that. And that was really exciting. Yeah. I mean, that that's beautiful the way that you put that. And it's something that's come up in some of the other episodes I've had with leaders in education like Kelly Smith from Prenda, Meredith Olson uh, from Vela, and my great friend Alex Hodera from Rocket Club, you know, just talking about how different people and kids, you know, different kids learn differently. Um, and for so many, what, for centuries, you know, in our society, it's been sort of that person talking at you at the front of the room. And I was the same way in school. I just got bored easily. And like the classes that I did best in were by far the ones that engaged me and excited me. Um, and I, it's been really interesting to see how that's sort of playing out in education reform. Mm, yeah, definitely. So it sounds like those six years, you know, you learned more than most people can in six years, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, I learned about how hard it is to build teams um, and to make sure that they function um, with like the maximum levels of efficiency and driving towards outcomes and goals. And the work is hard. I mean, the work of trying to change schools and make them better is not um, for the fainted heart, um, you know, there's a lot of resistance, there's a lot of challenges. And so we were, you know, in that 
in that every day. It can mean that your staff are demoralized. It can mean that, um, you know, people aren't always as happy as they could be. Um, it means that they could feel not great about their salaries. Like there's so many things that, um, as management, you have to really face. And, um, so culture and high quality impact, um, and kind of the relationship between those two things became a really um, big focal point for me um, of how do you achieve both of those things together? Yeah. And and how did that lead you to your next endeavor in founding Reup Education? I think after running um, citizen schools um, for those years and also then at that point being in ed reform at writ large for about 16 years, I was finally at a place where I felt like exhausted in some ways by all of the politics of education. I mean, I know the politics now are even more crazy than they were then, but it felt so ideological. Like I couldn't have another conversation about unions versus charter schools. Um, there are just so many conversations that we're starting to have repeat um, fatigue. And I was starting to be interested in new fodder, new content, um, but also running a nonprofit um, that was mostly backed by philanthropy um, was also feeling more exhausting to me. Yeah. I I loved I loved engaging with the funders actually, but I also found that I was craving a more sustainable revenue model, and I really became more interested in in finding a pathway to creating impact and social change with with a with a revenue strategy. Um, and I met. A venture capitalist um, in the Bay Area. His name is Paul Friedman, um, pretty well known in the higher ed space. Um, and I said, I'm really good at building things from scratch. Um, I don't always have the perfect, brilliant new idea that nobody's ever thought of, um, but I'm really good at, at, at sort of like taking something from nothing and breathing life into it. And he was like, well, I'm really good at coming up with a lot of ideas. Um, and, um, and we kind of co co-created, um, this company that, uh, we named Reup Education, which re-enrolled students that had dropped out of college. And, you know, in my K-12 education world, everything was about getting kids to college. Everything was about getting them to, you know, graduate because that was the way in which you get a better life. Um, and the ROI on college for so many and for so many years has been very clear and obvious. And so helping students re-enroll became something that I felt like yeah. um, really aligned to my values, um, but was serving a population that was a little older than I had ever served before, but felt like exactly the same population, the people who drop out were similar to the people that we were serving in the K-12 space. So it felt kind yeah. of perfect um, to build this company. Yeah, it's kind of like those people just hadn't been reached yet along that path. And, um, you know, I really uh, I really like what you said um, in terms of creating a sustainable organization. It's something I preach about a lot on this podcast is, you know, I don't love the whole distinction between nonprofit and for-profit. I think what we should strive for is creating sustainable organizations that create positive impact. And, you know, having been involved in a lot of uh, organizations myself, I know the difficulties of having to be completely funded by donors and just the exhaustion that can come with that as well. So I think it doesn't work for everything, but where it does work, where you can create a sustainable model to fund your impact, man, it makes life a lot better. Yeah. And I would say, um, 
I uh, actually, Paul used to say this a lot. Um, your moral status isn't dictated by your tax status, um, right? There are plenty of for-profits that could be doing good work. And there are plenty of non-for-profits that are not doing great work. And, um, you know, uh, the tax status isn't really the way to know one way or the other. Yeah, I like the way that he put it, just nice and simply like that. And um, certainly I agree. And so uh, re-up then I assume was uh, a for-profit model, um, in which case, uh, you know, how did the, the revenue model work? Yeah, um, the revenue model was that we would approach universities and we would say to them, if you can give us your list of the students that have stopped out, um, which is the term that higher ed uses for people who have dropped out of college, then um, we can engage them in coming back. Um, and if they do, then we would um, help you recoup funds that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And we would take a, a share of that. Um, so that was the model in the early days. Um, and we had some really important clients, um, Western Governors, Arizona State University, Bellevue University. Um, and uh, and, it, and it, did, it did really well. It ultimately sold to a private equity firm um, called Avathon. Um, and that is where it lives today. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I expect it to continue to do good work. Yeah, I mean, that, that's great. I mean, I love the fact that, like, the colleges are incentivized to pay you guys for this. So I, th I think that's a really good model. Um, you know, I'm curious, did you set out for it to be rel somewhat short term and then to exit? Or did that just sort of come about and, you know, you weren't expecting it? You know, I think it was a combination. I I had always, in some ways, um, because I had gone to college and almost everyone I had known had gone to college, um, I assumed that college was the answer. Um, and I think we are now questioning that a lot more. Um, and I started to really struggle with, you know, what does it mean to re-enroll students back in college when there's um, crushing debt that they are encountering. And that's a big reason why they were dropping out to begin with. And so I just, I started to really, for myself, um, feel like I had invested a lot of time and energy in educational institutions as the creator for a leveling playing field and as, as the institution that was going to be an equalizer. And I just realized that you know, there's a lot of different slices of higher ed, but there's a lot of parts of it that, you know, are not actually beneficial and um, for students, um, at least financially. And I started to just really become increasingly more interested in workforce as a solution to help people um, get jobs. Like if the point was to break the cycle of poverty, then maybe the quickest way to do that was by helping them get jobs as opposed to enrolling them in institutions that were going to cost a lot of money and take many years. And it doesn't mean that I don't believe in ed. I very much do. I just found myself wanting to pivot more um, as I kind of saw more of the brokenness of higher ed. Um, and from a distance, I just was a believer. And as I got closer to it, I just found myself um, wanting to be more engaged in the workforce space. And that really, you know, led me to found Clemhire. 
Awesome. Well, I mean, I definitely agree in terms of like our society is starting to question the value of college. There's so many politics involved and a lot of drama involved in, in that whole thing. And, you know, it's useful for some, less useful for others. And, um, you know, I, I saw that you were uh, a social capital entrepreneur in residence in, at LinkedIn after um, and, and had another position at LinkedIn. So let's kind of walk me through how that eventually took you to climb higher. Yeah. So um, as I was thinking about the next steps, um, uh, uh, somebody that I knew at LinkedIn um, said, I, I think that it's time for you to leave Reup and, and come here. Um, and uh, and so she um, created an EIR role for me, an entrepreneur in residence role, which I am forever grateful for. And at the time, on the, on the social impact team, and at the time, the um, uh, LinkedIn had just created a referral button on their platform. And what they learned by doing that was that the vast majority of job seekers were getting jobs through referrals. And I, you know, really thought about that for the first time ever, just, oh, how, how have I gotten my jobs? Where have they come from? And the answer was they came from referrals, every single one of them, relationships. And, and as much as I distinctly wanted to be unique in the world, um, I realized how distinctly ununique I was. Um, this is how most people get jobs, um, especially middle class jobs. And that a lot of that, um, came from people who went to prestigious colleges and got to live in dorms and sing in acapella clubs and write for the Crimson and play lacrosse and do all of these things that allowed them to build these deep networks and relationships in this coming of age period of time. And, um, and that opened up doors. And I just started to think about, gosh, like there must be so many people who didn't get to go to those kinds of colleges um, where the ROI is very abundantly, abundantly clear. And, um, and that my hypothesis was that there was a lot of hidden and overlooked talent, people who have um, grit and drive and motivation and deep work ethics and are holding down two or three jobs just to make ends meet. And um, what about if we could find that talent? And what about if we could give them short-term training and help them with um, an in-demand skill, but also help them create social capital and relationships alongside of those skills. And what would it look like if we were able to then serve up that talent to employers who deeply um, say that they're committed to and want diverse talent? And what about if we could help them identify those people and, and serve them up? And so that's what I did. <laughs> well, I love that. And I saw that you know, at one point you did a, an 18 month program as an Ascend fellow with the Aspen Institute. And I'm, you know, one, if you could just tell the audience a little bit about the Aspen Institute and two, I'm curious, you know, how it impacted your efforts with Climb Higher. Yeah. Um, I was so grateful to be part of the Ascend Network. I still am um, a very active Ascend alumni. Um, we were just all together in Aspen a few uh, uh, earlier in the summer. Um, so, so there, it's a it's an incredible network of people who are focused on thinking about poverty alleviation, not just from a one um, focus, um, i.e., like higher ed being the conduit to um, poverty alleviation or Head Start for kids, 
But what about if you were thinking about parents and kids together and programming and supports that would that would support families more comprehensively? Um, and so that became uh, a real focus for me in getting accepted, nominated, and then accepted into the Ascend Network. I was part of their third cohort. Um, it's a it's a fellowship that should have lasted 18 months, but lasted three years because we were in the middle of COVID. Um, but we met up four times over the course of those three years. Um, and it was it was just an incredible group of people who were focused on poverty alleviation in many different kinds of ways. Um, Raphael Warnock, um, who at the time was the um, head of Ebenezer Baptist Church, was in my cohort. Um, and, you know, now is a is the Georgia state senator, Georgia senator, um, U.S. senator. Um, and he kind of ran ran um, his Senate campaign while we were fellows together. So wow. just really special people um, who I don't think I would have met otherwise. And we would come together. We would read um, sacred texts, um, Socrates or, um, you know, Sotomayor's, um, uh, you know, autobiography and and things that really got us to think together about who we were as leaders and push um, for who we wanted to be as leaders and and use each other and leverage each other to um, think bigger and better together. Yeah, that sounds like it was a, a really fascinating experience where you were able to meet some great people. And, um, you know, how did you apply that to creating Climb Higher? Um, well, I, I was thinking a lot about social capital at the time. Um, I was still at LinkedIn and, um, was sort of munching on it a lot and, and had put my application in for a send, um, to really focus on what could it look like if we were able to democratize social capital in a different way. Um, and, and that really did become the founding, um, principles of Climb Higher. Um, and the model that I was designing was, focused on um, how could we teach this in-demand skill, but how could we model the program and design it in such a way that it optimized for all of the data that we um, then had. So in the 70s, um, there was a famous researcher out of Stanford. Um, his last name was Granowater. And he um, he figured out that weak ties um, which are people we don't know particularly well. So Jeff, you and I would be weak ties. We don't know each other super well, but we've been, you know, talking for a short bit. And my and the, what the data would say is that if somebody called you tomorrow and asked you about me or vice versa, we would say positive things about each other, and we would lend a positive referral for a job um, for a job if we were, you know, interviewing for one, or or if we knew somebody who um, could open up a door, and and we made that ask, then we would do it. And that's really counter um, counter to what we would normally assume. You would assume it's the people that you've worked with for years and years um, who know you the best, and those people are called strong ties. And we assume that it's the strong ties that open up the doors, um, and they do, but it's actually the weak ties who have far more tentacles. You have a whole network of people that I don't know and vice versa by just the definition that we are weak ties. So our tentacles are much further out and therefore we are able to have larger networks and because weak ties are willing to make those intros based on a positive interaction for 20, 30, 40 minutes, then that really allows for a lot of opportunity. And, and so my, and then weak, and then basically LinkedIn 
basically reproved that data point by putting this referral button on their website and then or their platform and then realizing that so many weak ties were making introductions and referrals and if that's true then you can capitalize on that um, on so many levels and so um, the way that our design works is that the alumni of the organization that have gone through the program and have had successful outcomes and have you know, made it into middle-class jobs, they come back and they train the next set of people. And um, that allows for people to then access their newfound social capital um, and the alumni to know one another and to build relationships. And then once a month, the climbers then also get to meet middle-class professionals um, and they get to practice the art of storytelling and, um, and, and meeting somebody new that they wouldn't have met otherwise and to practice the art of relationship building and asking questions and being active listeners and, um, following up and staying connected and, um, finding ways to create homophily, which is this concept of finding similarities. And when you find similarities, we then um, immediately have more trust and trust is what is the lubricant to create social capital and referrals. And so we teach the art of creating homophily, finding those similar points and which is easier to do when people have similar backgrounds to us, right? You and I both went to Jewish Orthodox school. So we have this connection that immediately gets kind of um, uh, articulated when you can find those connection points. And that's true when we have obvious similarities like, oh, you played lacrosse at Duke, me too. And then that trust is immediately built. Well, what happens for people when they don't have, when they're different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, didn't go to the same schools, didn't go to the same communities, didn't grow up in the same places. Finding homophily is much more challenging, but it is the lubricant. And so yeah. we teach it, we practice it, we create um, opportunities to engage with it. And all of that happens through the learning modules um, of Climb Higher. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. I, I love that. And the way that you put it in terms of the weak ties, you know, like you said, it's kind of counterintuitive on the surface, but then when you really think about it, it makes so much sense um, in terms of the, the wider spreading tentacles amongst the weak ties and, um, it's it, it's really interesting to think about you know how these early relationships can change your life, um, and I think it's you know I'm always trying to show people that everybody's creating positive impact in in some way or another, um, and I think it's important for like even little things that you do to keep in mind like you're you're probably helping someone in some way. Yeah, totally. I, I really agree. So, climb higher has been around for about five years, right? Um, how has the organization evolved in that time? Yeah, Climb Higher has evolved in lots of ways, and in some ways, not at all. Um, we still have the alumni supporting the next generation of climbers. They are offering referrals. Um, it takes a while to bake these things in the oven. So, you know, you have to get a group of people who um, go through the training, who then um, come back and train the next set of people. While they're training the next set of people, they're working at their companies, they're having successful experiences. Their companies then have new job opportunities, new open slots. And then we're kind of out there saying, hey, like, does your company have any open positions um, that 
would be good for another climber to come in. And then they're like, oh, yeah, actually, we do have an open position. And then that creates an opportunity for the next climber to get referred. And so that whole process takes a couple years, um, if not longer, because the people have to get senior enough. There has to be enough time that's evolved where a new opportunity, you know, shows up in that um, in that team or at that company. Um, so there's a lot um, that just takes to prove out the model to begin with. And I think we're still, you know, uh, doing that on a day by day basis. We've now had probably close to 100 climbers refer each other into jobs and about 20 or 30 that have gotten jobs through those referrals, um, which is really exciting. I think more powerfully, we've seen um, alumni um, who, you know, have moved on from their first job to their second job. We've got a good number of alumni now making 70, 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollars, sometimes more than a hundred thousand. We have a couple alumni that are um, at 120, 130, 140,000. It's really exciting to see the growth of the alumni and then them coming back and referring each other into roles yeah. and opportunities and them advancing. But in that process, they might have gone through a layoff. Um, you know, we've seen the tech industry go through ma massive layoffs this year. Um, and then to use their own social capital from companies that they were working at and a former manager, a former colleague then opens their door and says, hey, you know, I've moved to this new company. Do you want to come join me or there's a spot here? And just to see them leverage their own social capital. That's really the holy grail is that they have opportunities and doors that are open to them because they've crossed the experience chasm. That's the hardest thing to yeah. cross is companies saying like, oh, your person looks great, but they don't have experience. And experience is, I think, the um, the thing that is um, the blockade or the barrier um, to overcome more than anything else. Um, it's not really the bachelor degree. We see a lot less friction from that and much more friction from the um, the lack of experience. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Certainly. I can imagine that that is hard to come by initially for, for the types of people that you're serving. And, you know, I'm curious, is there sort of an ideal climber, you know, who are you serving? How does someone that needs your services get involved? Yeah. Um, we generally are targeting people in their twenties and thirties, who have, have been working for a few years, maybe are feeling stuck in retail, feeling kind of like, oh gosh, where am I, where am I going to go from here? Um, I want something new. I want something. I want out. I want a better life. I want higher wages. I want family sustaining wages. Um, and I want to learn something new. Um, we generally find those people on social media. Um, you know, we do recruiting off of all the major platforms that we all know and love, um, TikTok and Instagram and Reddit. And um, that's kind of what all of our peers in the space do as well. Um, and um, the criteria to be in the program is that you have to be earning below livable wage, which is generally $40,000. Um, and um, most of the people that we serve come from um, communities of color, um, although we don't, um, We've certainly had people that are white and um, generally um, that uh, it's a real smattering of, of people from different race, racial backgrounds. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, 
you know, it's really cool to see what you've already built and how that some of it has already started to come full circle. Uh, but you know, it, you're relatively early. It sounds like in something that, you know, is going to take sort of years of investment to really build out this sort of internal network and see all the, everything come to fruition. Um, what is your long-term hope for the future of climb higher? It's a good question. We're kind of like at this great moment of thinking about that. Um, as we kind of, you know, this year, um, get to our five year anniversary. And, um, I think there are quite a lot of organizations out there that have, um, you know, put the stake in the ground around like, let's do some short term credentialing, stackable credentials. Um, and I think, uh, I don't think that we need more of those organizations, to be honest. There's a lot out there. Um, but what I think what we offer that's really unique and special and different is our social capital work. And we've learned a lot about what it, what it takes to unlock social capital, to build it. We teach the art of how to build relationships. And we're this year because of a, a very generous grant, both from the walmart.org foundation and, um, the Schmidt Futures Foundation, Eric Schmidt. Um, we have really done a deep dive on research and development around what's happening or not happening in a social capitally rich conversation and where are opportunities getting unlocked and where are they not? And, you know, we really thought that um, if we put, because of the weak tie data and research, we just put a lot of professionals from different socioeconomic brackets together that, voila, like, you know, referrals would rain from the sky. Well, it doesn't quite work like that. And a big part of that is that you have to actually learn how to make an ask. Um, and as a former development director from many years ago, like I learned how to make an ask a long time ago um, and feel comfortable in it, but it's scary for people. And so, you know, Jeff, like if you and I are having a, a great conversation and you're like, oh, like I, you know, see that you are trying to figure out your next step. Um, how can I be helpful? Um, if I don't come to you and say, great, like here are three people in your network that I want to meet. And here's the blurb that I want you to send. And, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to do anything because I put all the mental load on you to figure it out for me. And if I just say, I don't know what I want. Can you help me figure it out? You're going to say, you know, you seem lovely, but I, I can't figure it out for you. But if I've done my research, if I've done the work, if I've figured out what I want, then I can ask you really thoughtfully and you'll do it because it takes five minutes. Um, as, if I've made a positive impression, that is. Yeah, and so, so what we found is that the climbers haven't always either like made the ask, um, because they might not know how, or they might not feel emotionally comfortable doing it. There's a lot of racial, um, uh, and socioeconomic questions that I think people really grapple with. I don't want to feel like I'm a charity case. I don't want to, um, feel like I'm putting somebody out. Um, and you know, what I say to climbers all the time is that middle class people are making referrals and introductions all day, every day. Um, and, and that is the way that the world goes round and we're just bringing them into that space. But there's a lot of trauma, um, PTSD of, um, just different mindsets that I think can be real inhibitors. And we have to teach that mindset, um, demystify it, um, make sure people understand that you aren't a charity case. You're not weighing on people. Um, but then how to make that ask in a really artful way that's gracious and humble and generous. Um, 
and um, we're still in the process of like perfecting that art and um, learn learning those things. Um, but I also think that we're probably further along than any other organization that's doing this work. And so I think we can be sharing this work more broadly with other workforce organizations, with colleges, with universities, with community um, colleges. Like there's a lot of ways that we can be impacting people's learning um, and people's experiences outside of Climb Higher. And so I do think that over time we will be doing um, both that work of direct service and of influencing other organizations um, with, you know, helping them understand how to unlock social capital. Yeah, I mean, just even understanding the concept of social capital, I think, is really critical for a lot of people that are, are looking for these opportunities. Definitely. And, you know, are, is this organization fully donor-backed? Is there a revenue model? How does that work? Yeah, um, we're definitely a combination of a lot of different things. Um, we get government grants. We've had two government grants um, from the state of California in the last year. That's been really exciting to add that into our funding mix. Um, we obviously do have philanthropic capital, um, you know, incredible supporters from Google.org, Strata, um, the Schusterman um, Foundation, the Schmidt, Fe Schmidt Futures, um, Walmart, Workday, LinkedIn, just like incredible supporters from very, very early on um, in our time here. Um, and then um, the climbers also pay, but not when they get into the program, but when they've gotten an outcome that's positive. So they pay $150 a month for four years when they've successfully achieved a positive outcome and are in the financial space to be able to pay it forward. Um, so we have um, a zero interest loan um, that we you know, ask people to pay it forward when they're able and ready. And then we also um, have employers that pay us when they hire people um, out of our cohorts as well. So, um, you know, a four braided revenue strategy approach. That's awesome. I mean, having these different revenue streams is really going to help you guys remain sustainable long term. And I, I love the pay it forward aspect. Reminds me of a previous podcast guest a little bit, Jason Wang from Free World. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them. You know Jason well, and he's awesome. a beloved friend um, and, a, and, a, and a really, really amazing guy. Awesome. Yeah. He... Great episode with Jason, if anyone wants to go back and check it out. But um, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that model and the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, I like that companies are paying to hire people out of the, the cohort as well. And, you know, speaking of companies and recruiting, you know, a note I wanted to ask you about is how can companies recruit intentionally to grow more diverse and talented workforces? I mean, the best way they can do that is by partnering with organizations like mine, like Jason's. There's a good number of them out there, Perscolis, Empower, Europe, Merit America. They're all great and, um, and we're close and friends with all of those leaders and, and, um, grateful for the friendships that we have in this space. Um, I think, you know, when companies, um, want to look for non-traditional diverse talent, um, organizations like ours do a lot of work to build those skills, both the durable and professional skills and relationship building skills, and also the, um, the technical skills. And we all, you know, have slightly different versions of what we teach and what skills we're teaching and, and engaging with. Um, but, uh, uh, we have like a really good rigorous vetting process in the, by nature of just working with people, getting to know them, seeing their tenacity and their gumption and their drive. Um, we can then um, 
hand select people to interview for roles that seem appropriate and right for the people that were, you know, that for the companies that are looking for the right fit. And so um, we do a lot of that matchmaking and that takes a lot of the guesswork out. When we've vetted people for six months through hard work and through effort and through dedication, through showing up, through doing, you know, their homework, through being a friend, like all this stuff, like we just know people so much more so much more than any company could through a couple of um, 30 or 60 minute interviews. And so just going through that vetting process with us or our peers, I think is a really great way to hire um, a non-traditional talent. Yeah. Awesome. And um, you know, what companies ideally should, should come to you? Are there any, any specific sort of areas or industries, you know, anyone that might be listening that, you know, is looking for this workforce, you know, how do they get engaged? Um, they certainly can reach out to me. <laughs> I'd be happy to talk to any employers. We have an employer partnerships team that spends every day, all day talking to employers about what their hiring needs are and what their diversity goals are and, and trying to help them um, successfully place great talent. Um, and, um, you know, I think there, there's a there's a staffing agency um, world out there and it's, you know, billions of um of dollars um, of of an industry um, between you know Manpower Group and Robert Half and Kelly and Adeco. I mean, there's it's a multi billion dollar industry, and what they do is they search LinkedIn and they find people and then they serve them up to companies as staffing agencies. They don't know them. They don't right. have deep relationships with these people. They just you know find them and then serve as the intermediary. And companies pay. 30, 40% of first year salary to go find these people. And, you know, if that's true in this multi-billion dollar industry, then, you know, our organizations can provide so much better of a service because we actually do know these people. We know them well, we know them intimately. And so we can serve as an alternative staffing model um, for that entry-level talent. So that's kind of like how I think companies should think about this. And we don't charge 30 or 40 percent. Um, we generally charge, you know, significantly less than that. And so there's also an affordable way for companies to engage. But that's how they should be thinking about this talent that they wouldn't have found otherwise on their own. They're not going to go find the Trader Joe's cashier and uh, train them up on their own and, and realize their potential. But that's what we do. Yeah. I mean, even beyond the initial savings of you charging less, they're going to save so much more long-term because some of the people that come through these intermediaries that don't know them are going to end up not working out. You know, I'm sure the percentage that work out would be a lot higher coming from, you know, your organization that has an in-depth understanding of the individual. Yeah. And then in terms of like what kinds of companies, I mean, there's no company at, at, at this point that doesn't need tech support, IT, data, operations, um, almost every company out there uses some CRM, usually Salesforce, but maybe others. We train people up on the Salesforce administrator certification. That has opened up so many doors for people of all different kinds. Um, we've got people who have gone into 40 different kinds of titles with that certification alone. Um, and so companies should think expansively. You're not really looking for talent who really know, you know, are, are, are the jack of all trades when they're coming in as a entry level hire. You're looking for the, um, 
the characteristics of that person, the traits that the um, the the qualities that they bring to um, a career, and um, you know, people that work hard, that you know, go to the end of the earth to figure things out, to problem solve. Like those are the people I want on my team, and you know, people who juggle multiple shifts and and juggle family life and juggle how to invest in learning all at the same time. Um, you can take good bets on those people because they um, they have those characteristics and those qualities in spades. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I love the work that you guys are doing, and you know, throughout this career of yours, you know, you've undoubtedly helped tons of people. And I'm curious, is there a story of when you really saw a direct example of how your work could affect change? Yeah, um, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about Tim um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, he's a Kymhire alum who I adore. Um, he's a black man um, who's also a single dad. Um, and, um, when he finished, um, he finished a program with us in customer success, um, tech sales, um, and, uh, and had really shined and sparkled. And then it was really hard for him to find a job. He was working as a frontline cook at a, um, you know, a restaurant and, um, we ended up helping him get a really great job at Deloitte, um, as an executive assistant making double um what what he had made before he had to move to dallas um to to start the job and uh, was living in sacramento in california and, and it was a hard move he really didn't even have a dollar to get onto the plane to make that move and um but really thrived um at deloitte and was there for only six months um and because of um, some health circumstances. Um, a, a very close family member had been diagnosed with breast cancer and, um, and he felt that, you know, that his daughter really needed to be near that person. And, and so he had to quit and was kind of back in, uh, homelessness and, and really in, in the depths of despair. Um, and he went back to the, um, to the company that he was working at as a frontline cook. Um, it, it was actually a healthcare company, um, that served people with addiction and he was, you know, making minimum wage. Um, but he, so he went back there and, uh, his boss, um, quit. And at that point, he really had um, the skills to go become a self-advocate. And he went to the CEO of the company and said, I can do this job. I've been in this kitchen for a couple of years and I, I know I know this work and um, I'm I'm ready to be a manager and lead this division of, of um, purchasing and providing food for people with various addictions that they're um, overcoming and and um and the ceo hired him and he's now making close to a hundred thousand dollars um and now starting to hire people on his team and um and uh, said to me you know recently like i use words that i never used before like budget analysis and kpis and metrics and things that just didn't come out of my mouth normally or naturally and um i've learned how to have really hard conversations that make me deeply uncomfortable, but are necessary. And I've learned to go to many meetings every day and just, um, I've learned how to be on zoom and talk to people. And, um, all of those skills came from climb higher and, um, I'm really, really proud of him. And, um, and he represents so many, um, yeah. people that are in our community that have overcome a lot, um, and have really succeeded. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful example and, 
just the the way that story sort of how he had to come back home and then was able to get that position um, at his old place of work. I mean, really, really cool to hear. And then I can only imagine how it feels to uh, hear like how much Climb Higher changed his life. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've done a lot in your career, as we've mentioned. Has there been anyone in particular that's been a really impactful mentor for you? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I, I certainly talked about my earliest mentor being Cami, who I adore um, and uh, love deeply. Um, and she's, you know, stayed a constant in my life for over 20 years. Um, you know, Ann Mosel, who um, runs the Ascend Institute, in, uh, the Ascend program out of um, Aspen, has also been a wonderful mentor. Um, Paul Friedman, who I talked about, who, you know, brought me over to found Reapp. Um, each of them have taught me different things. I didn't know anything about for-profits. I didn't know anything about venture capital. I didn't know anything about raising venture capital um, uh, or how Silicon Valley worked. And um, I learned all of that from him. Um, so I, I would say, like, there have been wonderful mentors that have kind of adopted me at different moments of my career journey and like where I needed to learn. I've also been so grateful um, to work with people who who lift me up all the time. And um, uh, Serby Grant, I hired her um, out of the Teach for America Corps when she was 24, 25 years old, um, now almost uh, 15 years ago. Uh, as a managing director at Citizen Schools. And today she's the president of Climb Higher and manages all the day-to-day -day, um, and all of the internal work that we do. Um, and is a, 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 a child of Jamaican in immigrants and is just one of the smartest um, and most impactful leaders I've ever met um, and that I've grown up with. Um, and, and she's been a uh, you know, working with me and for me for years. But, um, you know, at this point, we're deeply peered and, um, and kindred spirits. And I'm so grateful to be running and leading organizations with her every day. Um, and then Kate Smalkin, who um, was, is our SVP of employer partnerships. She's helped to unlock so many opportunities for so many climbers, um, through her work with employers. She came from an executive search background that, you know, that industry I talked about, that's many billions of dollars. Um, she, you know, comes from that world and, and helped to use so much of the ways and the methodologies of, of search, um, and, and apply it in our, in our space. And so, I've um, just been really grateful for leaders that I've gotten to work with now for a number of years, um, both um, as peers or as colleagues um, yeah. and um, as people that have, you know, taken me under their wings when I was young um, and, and learning the ropes as an entrepreneur and stumbling and, and figuring it out the hard way um, over and over and over again. I mean, it certainly says a lot about you, how much you value your colleagues and just the tremendous people that you've been able to surround yourself with. So um, I'm sure that will continue to go a long way as, as things grow for you and for Climb Higher. Thank you. If you'd like, uh, now's the time that you can ask me a question. Oh, um, why did you decide to start a podcast? Um, yeah, I mean, really, uh, I have... I have an affinity for broadcast in general, you know, as a kid, so sometimes I wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy and I did a little bit of that in college and, you know, I'd always wanted to get back into it in some capacity. Um, you know, I'd been a listener of podcasts for many years and 
Um, one day it sort of struck me that in my efforts, you know, especially in drug policy and criminal justice reform, but just in general, I'd been meeting a lot of good people doing good things. And I just think that there's so much negativity out there and to be able to shine a light on some of these people, especially people that often don't let the light shine on them because they're busy doing the work. Um, I just thought it was a, it was a cool opportunity to both do that and also build a little bit of a voice for myself, but while, you know, lifting up others and, um, it's been a, a really cool journey and, um, I've met a lot of good people and I've been able to learn more about people that I already knew that I've had on the show. And, um, it's been very rewarding. Mm, I'm so glad. How long has it been going on for? Um, I'd say about, I don't know, a year and a half, two years now. Okay. Uh, you know, I think your episode is going to be 77. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. Yeah. Whatever this really means to you, you know, if everything were to end tomorrow, what are you either most proud of or most grateful for? Well, I would say I'm really proud of the hundreds of alumni of Climb Higher who have changed their lives and who have reached back out and helped other people change their lives. Um, the ones who make those referrals, the ones who come back as fellows, um, those are the people that inspire me the most. Um, I, I spent a lot of time like learning about their lives and their stories and, and getting close to various alum as well. And just being on their life journey with them has been some of the proudest and happiest moments of my life. Um, I've learned a lot about their life struggles and, and what it takes to overcome obstacles. Um, and I learn more in life from them um, than I do from anyone else. So I'm really proud of the alum of this program and I'm proud for the ones that just like continue to invest in our community and, and have embraced the value system of giving, giving to the next um, generation. Um, David Brooks, the famous New York Times yeah. back page columnist, um, when, who is the, who's the token conservative columnist on the back page of the Times, he uh, was a deep inspiration to me years ago. Um, when Trump was elected, I think he was really depressed and really looking for hope. Where could he find it? And, um, you know, was just feeling like that the president was not the brand of Republican um, that he subscribed to. And he went on this tour across the U.S. Um, and would go into all of these deep communities looking for hope. And what he found over and over again were these individuals who everybody knew them, they knew everybody, and they were the ones that kind of made, uh, you know, a, a, a food drive for the sick or um, a barbecue on July 4th or a community event or, you know, people who needed assistance. Like they were just the movers and shakers and the drivers and nobody paid them. They just did it out of their goodness of their hearts. And they were these community builders and these doers. And um, he gave them a name. He called them weavers. And he said that there were weavers in every part of the United States, in every community. Um, and he took deep inspiration and hope from them. And I did too. Um, and I always wanted to be a weaver. Um, but I didn't just want to be a weaver myself. I wanted to create a community of weavers. Um, and, um, and I think every day I see weavers in our community who are lending a hand and helping others. And those are the proudest moments of my life. Yeah. That, 
that's tremendous. And I like the way that he put it um, in terms of weavers and uh, yeah, you've certainly built that. And, you know, I've been fortunate to hear David Brooks speak at an event. Uh, he was, you know, very interesting and impactful, um, started, you know, grabbed one of his books after. And um, it's, it's cool to see how, you know, his perspective has sort of influenced the way that you look at your, what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, the, sort of the big question that I ask every guest is this, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? It's mm, a great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're in a, we're in a hard time right now, right? Like, we are feeling the the reverberations of climate change the most that we've ever felt it. The summer was, you know, undeniably hot. Um, and I think we're in for a lifetime of undeniably hot summers and winters and just a lot of brouhaha from that. And I've got a six-year-old daughter who I'm, you know, I'm scared about the world that she's inheriting. Um, and also like the hopelessness that I think, the generation of teenagers and, um, you know, Gen Z um, are growing up with. And there's a lot of depression in the world and a lot of hopelessness and, and fear. Um, and I think a lot of that is rooted in climate change um, for people that are want to know and want to um, understand it and, and care about it. I don't work in the climate space at all, but I find myself feeling increasingly more concerned about it. And um, I think as, as people feel the impact much more directly and personally than ever before. So um, I don't know what the answer is other than to do all the things that you're supposed to do to yeah. create, you know, the changes around, you know, eliminating gas, eliminating coal and um, emissions and, and switching to, um, more neutral and, and natural, um, forces for energy. Um, but alongside of that, like taking away the despair and the hopelessness that I think we're seeing more in our teenagers and our young people, yeah. um, that, um, I I'd like to get rid of. Um, and I think the second one, which is much more relevant to the work that I do every day is around just the, um, larger and larger and larger gaps of, economic inequality. Um, there's a lot of policies that were created in the seventies and eighties that around, un, you know, deregulation and around kind of wealth formation. Um, you know, you can put your money in a DAF and never touch it and still get the tax shelters. Um, we used to have different rules. It used to be that you get tax shelters when you give away money and now you don't have to give it away. So I think just, there's a lot of, um, there's just an increasing, um, fear that I have around the inequalities that exist. And I know that the argument against it is like, well, if you take away people's, um, desire for any form of wealth creation that they might want to go after and have, um, there, if they feel like there's constraints and, um, and caps, then, then they won't you know, pursue the innovative things that have changed our society. And I don't, I don't buy that argument. And I think, um, people should work for their money. I think we need to create incentives for that. Um, but people should have access to 
living wages if they work hard. And um, I don't always see that happening. And that feels really scary to me too. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really is. There's, there's certainly climate change, the, the wide wealth gaps among, among other things. And so um, there's a lot of work we need to do in our world and hopefully we're on the right path, you know, doing everything we can. And, um, you know, lastly, I'm just going to ask, how can people listening support you climb higher and support your impact? Thanks for asking, Jeff. I mean, um, we definitely have seen a downturn in um, corporations hiring in the last like six to nine months. And so that obviously has had a extended impact in our community. Um, we are aspirational and um, know that that's not going to be the case forever. Um, we're you know, hopeful that there is going to be an economic upswing um, that happens in the hiring market. The jobs reports um, are a little bit misleading because where a lot of the job growth has happened is in low wage jobs, um, both in healthcare and um, and and in you know in, in hourly wages um, that you know are generally minimum wage jobs. So we're not you know that excited about the jobs report, even though it says that there's a lot of demand for workers out there. Um, but the jobs report needs to be disaggregated into livable wage jobs versus non-livable wage jobs. And for the livable wage jobs that now come onto the market, I really encourage employers to reach out to us for non-traditional but exceptional talent um, that they can um, get through vetted processes um, like ours. Um, so employers, come find us, um, uh, especially for those entry-level roles that you have on your teams. Um, and to the philanthropists and um, the individuals out there that want to make a difference um, and want to make change, um, I can find some ways to put your resources um, to good use. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your incredible work. Thank you for your time here with me today. Um, and, you know, I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation and keeping up with the work of Climb Higher. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was delightful to spend this hour with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.